I do want to begin by expressing a huge thank you to those who were willing to be the voices as we read two chapters of John's Gospel, which is our sermon text for today. Each of you truly did an excellent job. Thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for your willingness to serve in that way. And those who have prayed and helped us to express our faith in song, thank you. You've got to be wondering, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Jordan's preaching two chapters. Uh, I hope you packed a lunch, maybe a dinner. Um, It's not our custom to take two chapters, and I'm going to try not to go too deep into some of the details because our aim today is to overview those chapters with an eye toward going back, Lord willing, starting next week and taking the parts of it to drag the plow a little bit deeper. So today I just want to overview, like we did with John 17 just a couple of months back, and then we took six sermons after that to walk back through that chapter. We're doing the same thing with chapters 18 and 19, and then we'll come back, as I mentioned, and trust the Lord's help for us to go deeper into each of the parts of it. Another reason we're taking 18 and 19 in an overview is because of an article that I shared with our church family earlier this week that I bumped into last summer that helped me connect some dots in John 18, 19, and 20 to other parts of Scripture that I had not connected so clearly. I'd seen some of the themes, but they were kind of scattered in the orbit of my mind and in my heart. So today, really what I want to do is, using what some of you may have read, that article I shared, it's written by James Bijan, who is an Old Testament junior researcher at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England, and I'll be referencing it here and there throughout. You can find it on the internet. As I read that article, what was vague started to become a little more clear, and since last summer being introduced through that article to some of those themes in their organization in John 18 and 19, especially in comparison to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I want to try to set before you what I do believe John is trying to do in these chapters. Our text was already read for us earlier. I won't reread those two chapters, but I'll draw your attention to it if you have your Bibles. We'll be in John 18 and 19, and I want to begin by saying we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. John's primary point that he had set out to unfold from the beginning of the first verse in chapter 1 is now readily apparent in chapters 18, 19, and into 20. John gives nearly half of his 21 chapters to the final seven days of Jesus' life. That is a disproportionate focus when you're writing a biography of the most important person who's ever lived. Why give half of your material to one week? It's precisely because that is the point. And the point of points, the emphasis of emphasis of that last week is no doubt in today's text, the arrest trial and crucifixion of the Lord of glory. 
Today's passage is devoted to those final hours of Jesus' life leading up to and upon the cross. Our passage ends with his lifeless body being taken down from that cross and laid in a borrowed tomb. Today's passage is about the death of Jesus. Let us not miss the forest for the trees. The key sentence that John had been aiming at since the first verse that he wrote in chapter 1 is, I believe, the phrase in verse 18 of chapter 19, there they crucified him. Four words, but in those four words is your only hope for everlasting good. John's been aiming at that sentence, as I said, from the first verse of the first chapter, so do not miss the death of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's not only the biggest deal in all four Gospels, Mark gives about half of his material, John about half of his material, Matthew and Luke about a third of their material to the last week of Jesus' life. This is clearly their point. But it's not only the biggest deal to the gospel writers, Jesus' inspired biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the biggest deal in the whole Bible because it's the biggest deal to God himself. You could say it like this, the cross of Jesus may not be a big deal to you, but God will never get over the fact that his son died for the forgiveness of your sins. No one who minimizes the cross work of Jesus will ever be welcome in God's favorable presence. That's not only the main point of John, and not only the main point of the four Gospels, it is, as I've tried to say already, the main point of the whole Bible. The Apostle Paul, who couldn't get Bible out of his mouth everywhere he went to preach, said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified his person, and his gospel labors. That's what the whole Bible's about. If I'd been on my A-game months ago when we planned this sermon series through John's gospel, I would have titled this sermon, Today You Will Be With Me in Paradise. That, of course, is Jesus' saying from the cross. It's a familiar phrase that even non-Christians have heard before and might be familiar with, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the phrase that Jesus said to one of the two men who was crucified beside him. The man was gloriously saved in the final moments of his life. I cannot wait to meet that brother in glory and ask him some questions. Some of you may be familiar with what had gone viral of Pastor Alistair Begg meditating on that man when he got to heaven and having no idea how he got there and what it was all about. He uh, wasn't a churchgoer, a Bible man. And, and, and beg, men, uh, meditating on, on, on why that man was there, did it kind of in the, in the classic, people quizzing him, how, how did you get here? What, what are you doing here? And, and beg says so well in his Scottish English accent, the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works. That man did nothing good, but he put his hope in a man who had only done good and died for his sins. Today, Jesus said to that man, you'll be with me in paradise. 
It's what all the gospel writers mainly want us to know. That no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, no matter where you've been, and no matter how long you've stayed there, there is, as Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs put it, there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. That's what John 18 and 19 is all about. John even told us that he wrote his entire gospel, which obviously includes chapter 18 and 19, so that you would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life eternal. John 20, verse 30 and 31. So the theme that I want to draw out today is that Jesus is able to take you to paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. That's what I believe John 18 and 19 is really all about. And in order to understand the paradise that I have in mind, you have to have a little bit of understanding of the beginning of your Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because there was a paradise on this world that's now so riddled with sin and all of its effects. Many people have pointed out that the Gospel of John is the New Testament Genesis. So if you don't really know much about Genesis, John's going to be hard to really follow. You can get it if you only have John. You can understand what John's trying to say if you only have John, but you'll be able to get it, get it, if you have more of the Bible and Genesis especially. Why would people call John the New Testament Genesis? Well, many have done so, and they do it for a lot of reasons. It opens the exact same way. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, John 1-1. Genesis, as you all know, even if you hadn't read it, you know this, begins with the six days of creation and God resting on the seventh day. How's the Gospel of John open? With a calendar week of the life of Jesus, seven consecutive days of Jesus. In Genesis, God rests on the seventh day, not because he's tired or worn out. He's never fatigued. He doesn't grow weary or slumber. He never sleeps. He didn't expend energy to make everything. It exhausted him none. Why did he rest? Not because he was tired, but to invite all of creation into what he had enjoyed from all eternity, that is the happy much-making of God. He made us to worship him. So what happens on the seventh day of the week at the beginning of the Gospel of John? Jesus, and I quote, reveals his glory through the miracle of the water to wine, the wedding of Cana in Galilee. So John and Genesis have a lot in common. In the beginning, in the beginning. A calendar week, a calendar week. The book of John and Genesis can be compared a lot of ways. They both begin with the Creator, who I believe is Christ Himself, second person of the Trinity, made everything, including His own mother. And Genesis and John also end the same way. Genesis ends with a man who had been horrifically betrayed, mistreated, rising to the place of premier prominence in the world. And reigning in such a way that all God's people are done good. And John ends the exact same way with a man exalted to the highest place. And even though many 
had sought to do him harm, God meant it for good for the preserving of many people alive. Genesis 50 verse 20 is really one of the key verses of the gospel in the whole Bible. So what I'm trying to show is that a lot of people have shown a lot of connections between Genesis and John. Those connections abound. The more you read, the more you'll see. Lots of people pointed out that John wanted his readers to see some of those connections also. In my estimation, which may reveal my spiritual immaturity and my biblical illiteracy, none of the connections that I've seen between Genesis and John, and I could be here for quite a while sharing others with you, none of them are more soul-stirring and heart-thumpingly staggering than what we find in chapters 18 and 19. The connections that John makes to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in John 18, 19, and 20 are meant to show us that Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. He is attacking sin. He is hunting it down and undoing the damage that sin has done to the honor of God in the world. He is restoring Eden. He's bringing his people into his paradise to be with him forever. So I'll borrow from that article that I mentioned to you. You can find it online, and it'll certainly have more than I would share. But I want to meditate with you on John 18 and 19. Let's think together about some connections between that passage that we're looking at and Genesis 1 and 2, which you're familiar with. Just like Genesis 1 and 2 John sets up the cross of Jesus in a garden. John 18, 1 was read for us, which says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So John clearly puts a little accent there on garden, and he doesn't want you to miss it, so he says it again. John 18, 26, when Peter's denying Jesus before a slave of the high priest who was a relative of Malchus whose ear Peter cut off. The slave said to Peter, John 18, 26, did I not see you in the garden with him? And in in John 19, John doesn't want you to miss it again, so he says, now in the place where he was crucified... John 19, 41, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. John doesn't want you to miss that this is in the context of a garden, which should take us back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But do you remember when Jesus was raised from the dead, and he appeared first to women, and to one in particular, who saw him, and in John 20, verse 15, woman, Jesus said, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus reveals himself, and she recognizes that it's the risen Lord. So what's the first thing Jesus does when he rises from the dead? Well, the first thing he did was he did some laundry. He folded up his burial cloth. And Hebrews tells us 
that he's going to fold up all of creation one day like a garment. He's going to fix it. The second thing he does is plant some flowers or pull some weeds to show us he's going to fix it all. And he's going to make the whole earth like the Garden of Eden. So the first thing we see in connection from John 18, 19, and 20 to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is it, it's, it's happening in a context of a garden. But also just like Genesis 1, I believe John wants his readers to work hard to see what he's writing. I don't mean the words are hard to read, but if you're envisioning what he's writing, you should have a hard time seeing it in your mind's eye because everything is It's not daytime in John 18 and 19. It's nighttime. Genesis 1 and 2, the, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, second verse of your Bible says, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. What do you find in John 18, verse 1? Jesus enters the garden by crossing the Kidron Ravine. What does Kidron mean? Darkness. Now, of course, the sun comes up the next morning. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. The other gospel writers tell us it goes pitch black at noon in the middle of the day. And Jesus dies at 3 p.m. So 9 to 3, Jesus is on the cross, and it's dark from noon to 3, and he dies in pitch blackness. The other gospel writers tell us that. But John tells us that when they took Jesus' lifeless body off the cross... There was a man who gained permission to do so from Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus who feared the Jews, so he was kind of a secret Christian. But Nicodemus, who had come to Jesus, John chapter 3, at nighttime, is also with Joseph of Arimathea. He had become a believer, and we're told that Nicodemus, who had come to him at night, now just before nightfall, is taking Jesus' lifeless body with Joseph of Arimathea and laying it in a garden tomb. And John really wants you to know that it's dark. Because on the morning Jesus rises from the dead, John chapter 20, verse 1, we're told this. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. What's John trying to help us see? Like the beginning, when everything was dark and the earth was formless and void, and after the curse of, Kent, of curse of sin came into the world through Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and, and darkness has prevailed. We're, we're, we're told in the New Testament that Satan's is a kingdom of darkness, and darkness is everywhere, and people are spiritually blind. It's totally pitch black in their spiritual eyesight. They can't see a thing. And John wants you to know that it's all de-creational in John 18, 19, and 20. It's dark. Until, of course, Jesus is found risen from the dead. And those who come to believe in him, it's like a light bursting forth from Christ brighter than the sun. And you 
who have believed on Christ have experienced the same thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says creational language. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus is the light in John 18, 19, and 20. So as we look at the connections between John 18 to 20 and Genesis 1 to 3, it becomes compelling to me Maybe you're not convinced yet that John wants us to see the cross and resurrection of Jesus as a reversal of the curse of sin, a return to paradise before sin entered the world, that Jesus came on a mission to do away with sin and all of its effects and to bring God's people back to the undiluted presence of God forever. Isn't it beautiful that our catechism was just about that? So I mentioned this fellow, James Bajan, who in his article points out some of these connections, and he mentioned some images, and I read this last summer and started thinking, so I started, started going back and reading and, and, and seeing some of these connections. For example, Genesis 3.24, right after sin entered the world right after the curses had been spoken by God upon humanity and Satan and himself and all of creation. God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He tells them they can't come back in. In fact, he places guards at the edge of the garden. They're angelic. They have flaming swords to protect the entrance. That's the end of Genesis 1 through 3. But in John... He does it all backwards. I think John is saying Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. So go with me here. At the end of Genesis 3, nobody gets in the garden and angels with flaming swords guard anybody from coming in. What happens at the beginning of John 18, 19, and 20? Jesus goes straight through flaming swords. In John 18, he's arrested by no less than 600 soldiers. Some footnotes in some Bibles suggest that it's upwards of 1,000 military people and their entourage, what are they carrying? Flaming swords, or at least it looks like that in the dark of night when the lanterns and torches and weapons, what weapons did they have? They didn't have muzzle loaders. They didn't have fully automatic rifles. What weapons did they have? Daggers, like the one Peter used to cut off Malchus's ear. So if there's a torch and a sword, it makes the sword look like it's on fire, and Jesus in a garden goes right through it to start John 18, 19, and 20. In Genesis 3:18, one of the effects of the curse that God spoke on the world and the earth is that it would bear thorns. So after Jesus goes through the flaming swords in John 18, he gets a crown. In John 19, 2, a crown of thorns put on his head, literally wearing the curse of sin, though he never sinned. And then in Genesis 2, 22, so I'm going backwards. There's flaming swords guarding the Garden of Eden. There's some thorns in there. And then you keep going back in Genesis 2. What's the next thing you find? Well, not exactly the immediate next thing, but one of the next things you find is that there's a man there by himself, with no helpmate. So from his side, God brings life. Eve literally means life, mother of living. 
And so God brought life from a man's side. And then in John's gospel, if you go through chapter 18 into 19, you see Jesus is dead. And then the soldier doesn't break his legs. He was already dead. He just wants insult, uh, insult to injury. He hates Jesus so bad he jabs his spear into his side. It goes up into his pericardium, sack of water around his heart. It explodes and out from his side, not only blood flows, but water, which all through Scripture is a sign of life. I know this could sound just allegorical and you're making connections that aren't there, but keep going with me here. Keep going back in Genesis, John 2, 7. When God made man before he made the woman, when he made the man out of the dust of the ground, he wasn't alive. He was just there. He existed, but he didn't live until, of course, God, Genesis 2, 7, breathed life into Adam. What happened when Jesus got up from the dead? He met with his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 22. So now we've gone all the way back through the garden. We've got a man here, and God breathed life into him. Now we've gone all the way through those flaming swords, through the thorns, through the side of Jesus. Now he's risen from the dead. What do we have at the end? So at the beginning, we've got a man here who God breathed life into. And at the end of John chapter 20, verse 22, we have the risen Jesus, quote, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So unlike the first Adam, the second Adam is attacking Satan and sin until there's no remnant of his influence to be found. It's paradise, just like before the fall, only better. And the reason it's better is because it can never be lost. John 18 through 20 is quite literally Jesus taking people back to paradise. And while there are plenty of similarities between Genesis 1 to 3, John 18 to 20, there are some striking and very important differences. So I've said it four or five times. I'm going to say it again. I commend to you James Bijan, B-E-J-O-N's article. Let me highlight just a few of the differences between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam in Genesis 3 hides. He goes and gets fig leaves. He's behind a bush when God comes walking in the cool of the day. The last Adam in John 18 steps forward and he confronts all God's enemies. Do you remember what we heard read? And maybe you've read recently yourself. Do you remember the beginning of John 18 when these 600 plus trained military ironclad, weapon-toting, lantern-having, torch-wielding soldiers, 600 of them, they dwarf this audience. We're no match for that kind of military might, plus their entourage of chief priests and scribes and Pharisees who we told are told are with them. So we're, we're looking at about a thousand plus people who come to arrest one man who has no weapons in a garden all by himself. Do you remember what happened in John 18? The first Adam hid behind a bush. The second Adam steps forward. He initiates the conversation. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus says to them, I am. And all of them fall on their back. You can go read it for yourself in John 18. When they get up, Jesus says again by initiative, whom do you seek? And I read it, as I've said here before at Grace Church, with trembling, quivering jaws. 
Jesus the Nazarene. That's who we're looking for. You know what Jesus does? He tells those thousand people, let's be conservative, 600 people, okay, here's the deal. I'll go with you. You let all my followers go their way in peace, and they do it. You tell me who's in control. You tell me who's under arrest. Jesus is in total control of the entire situation from the beginning. So the first Adam hides, and the second Adam steps forward, confronting all God's enemies. The first Adam started in glory, an image bearer, the Imago Dei, reflecting God's character as you were made to. You're not made to see your glory. You're made to reflect God's glory like a mirror, like a moon to the sun. has no light in and of itself, but it looks brilliant on a clear night because it shines like it's supposed to, the reflection of something more glorious. And Adam did that. He shone the glory of God in his life. He reflected God as he was supposed to, as his image bearer. The last Adam started with thorns and ended in glory. The first Adam started in glory and ended in thorns. The first Adam, Bajan writes, takes his first breath in a garden. The last Adam takes his final breath in a garden. The first, breath, the, the first Adam was misled by Satan to eat from a tree. The last Adam crushed the head of Satan, being led by God to die on a tree. The first Adam was a mere man who became like God. Don't eat from that tree because God knows if you eat from it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. The first Adam became like God. The last Adam was God who took on flesh and became a man. The first Adam brought death upon his posterity. The last Adam brought life to all God's people. Here's the end of my sermon. Two chapters, one of the shortest ones I've ever preached here at Grace. How does Jesus take us to paradise? I think that's what John wants you to know. Has he take you to a forever home with God in glory? He just prayed in the sentence right before chapter 18, Father, I desire that all whom you have given me will be with me where I am to see my glory. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let them see my glory. Let them know the love you have for me and give them that same love and give them myself. He wants you in paradise. He wants you to see his glory. How does he do it? The answer is, I believe, maybe my spiritual immaturity and biblical illiteracy on vivid display, I believe it's pretty subtle in John. It's laced throughout chapter 18 through 20, but there's no subtlety in the rest of the New Testament. It's hypercolor clear. So in John, this is how he takes you to paradise. He's a victim. I don't know if you've read Leviticus lately. It's a bloody, bloody book. And if you read chapters 14 through 16 of Leviticus ever, but I commend them to you highly. It was one of the most common Easter sermon texts for about the first thousand years of church history after the New Testament. It's about Yom Kippur. It's about the Day of Atonement. It's about the high priest getting a lamb and offering it as a victim, as a sacrifice in the stead of God's people and putting its blood on the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. What do you see in John's gospel? You see the answer to the question, 
How does Jesus get you to paradise? How does he take you back through those flaming swords, back through the curse on the world and its thorns, back through the curse on mankind? How do you get through sin back to where you were originally made to be? How do you get to be with God forever in a global Eden where there's no sin and no ability to sin? How does Jesus get you to paradise? In John's gospel, he weaves in some subtle imagery, wood, Scarlet fabric, fire, hyssop, fresh water. Go read Leviticus 14 to 16 again. You'll see every one of those things. I've been raptured since last summer when I started to see these things and reading the Pentateuch and the sacrificial system and that bloody book of Leviticus. I've been raptured. I, I, I promise you, I couldn't wait to get here and preach this sermon, but I've been firing my bones here, but here I am. I want you to imagine something as I close. You lived in Old Testament Israel during the 40-year wilderness wandering. You wake up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, but on the day of Passover, there you are in the dusty, dirty wilderness. You hadn't had a bath in who knows how long, because it's been a long time since you wandered by a riverside. It's Passover morning. The high priest has the lamb all prepared, the most choice, unblemished sacrifice he could find from the entire flock of all the tribes. And he's prepared to offer it as the God-required sacrifice. And there you are. All of Israel is standing at attention. They're arranged by tribes around the tabernacle. The festivities are rife with rich meditation on God's past mercy. Every single tribe is singing a cappella like we did just a few moments ago. And what they're singing is Exodus 15.1, the song of Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. He made sport of Pharaoh and all of his army. The most powerful enemy of God's people was publicly put to shame. The reason you're in the wilderness is because you came through the Red Sea where God humbled his enemies through humiliation. After he had sent ten plagues on Egypt, after he had brought the tent, the death of the firstborn, he had finally killed Pharaoh and his entire army in the sea, and all of Israel was bone dry on the other side of that sea because God parted the waters, and all that big fierce army was dead and they're singing a song and it's Passover morning and you're dirty and you're in the middle of the desert. Now I want you to imagine that morning, the high priest, you hear the bleeding of the little sheep. He's about to offer that lamb for himself and for the entire nation. Now, I want you to let your mind drift. Fast forward to about 30 AD, whenever the precise dating of the crucifixion of Jesus happened. Let your mind zoom through the streets of Jerusalem. There's Jesus on the Via De La Rosa. He's carrying his own crossbeam. Let your mind's eye watch the Lamb of God do something that all the lambs of the Old Testament could never do. John 1.29, take your sin away. And here's the question I want to ask you. How is he going to get you to paradise? I think that's what John wants you to to get. There's so much imagery in the New Testament, so much explicit declaration in the New Testament about Jesus being the high priest. But as I read John 18 and 19, which we heard today, 
Yes, I know the New Testament tells me he's functioning priestly. I know he's the high priest. But all I see is victim. You go read Leviticus 14, what do you find about the sacrifices? They're bound. They're led to sacrifice. They pass by fire, which you find in John 18 and 19 with Peter and the charcoal fire. They're finally offered. All I see in John 18 and 19 is victim, victim, victim. So where is the priest? Donald McLeod's book, Christ Crucified, I kid you not, put me on my face. No exaggeration. What a God, what a gospel, what a love. Here's one paragraph. What can we say as to the precise nature of the Father's action at Calvary? We see the Son everywhere. Where's the Father? I've told you about all these connections between John and Genesis. I hadn't even told you about one of the most explicitly obvious, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Isaac carrying his own wood for his own self-sacrifice up the mountain. That's what you see in Jesus. Where is the Father? The New Testament answer, Donald McLeod, is breathtaking. He acted, he acted, the Father acted, McLeod's arguing, in the role of priest. Just as Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45, so God the Father, John 3, 16, gave his one and only Son. He's active. Just as Christ, Ephesians 5, 2, delivered himself up as a fragrant aroma and offering to God, so also the Father, Romans 8, 32, delivered up his own Son. He's there. He's there. Clearly then, McLeod concludes, corresponding to the priesthood of the self-governing Son, there is a priesthood of God the Father. From this point of view, here's the answer to how he's going to get you to paradise. From this point of view, Golgotha becomes his temple. See, I think Eden is a temple. And I think that tabernacle that you were just standing outside of a few minutes ago in your imagination is a prelude to a temple. And then the actual physical temple in Jerusalem, I think Golgotha is the most overlooked temple in the whole Bible and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat is and the blood is sprinkled is the cross. Golgotha becomes his temple where far from abusing a child or sadistically inflicting cruelty, he, the father, is engaged in the most solemn business that earth can witness. He is offering a sacrifice. The cross is his altar and his own son is the victim. How's he going to get you to paradise? This is the message John wants you to see. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Life forever with God in paradise. No more sin because Jesus reversed the curse. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Christ the Lord. I know we've only scratched the surface. I give you glory that if the return of Christ tarries and you give us length of days, we'll get to take the next many Lord's days and back up and walk passage by passage by passage through what we just saw a glimpse of today. But I thank you that Jesus, 
went back to the garden and he went there on a mission to undo the curse. Thank you that he became the victim that is the full required sacrifice for sinners like us to hear that blessed sentence which he said to the the man on the cross beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, we look to that day and we look to the risen Christ who alone can bring us there with you forever.